we had been working on this idea, me and my DP, Tommy Maddox, we've been working on this idea. I'm like, yo, I got an idea to do the sequence. And it just, it grew to this motion control thing. And so Tommy, my AD, you know, Dennis, we were all in on this, but it was taking a little time. And the producer was like, yo, this is taking way too long, six eighths of a page. And I'm like, maybe I'll let me start modifying it. And my DP was like, man, don't you change a fucking thing. This shit is dope. You start modifying it, it's gonna ruin the whole thing. And I'm like, all right, let's just live in it then. And he, he was 100% right, 100% right. And that sequence is one of my proudest moments in terms of storytelling because it condenses a, a woman's addiction into like a minute and a half, minute and 45 seconds to show, and, and, and not, it's not just her smoking, but you see her wardrobe change, her face changes, her uh, her bedroom changes until she starts hocking stuff. So we just tell this story so cinematically. I, I hold that with me because sometimes, once again, it goes back to when you're doing something that scares you, don't let the fear disrupt you. Just push through that joint. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? This is Pete Chapman welcoming you to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, episode 26. And what do we have uh, this week? We're welcoming director Carl Seaton, one of my, uh, you know, favorite types of combos to do that director to director rap. But before we dive in, I will give you the updates on what's going on in this director's world, um, just to give you all a little bit of an interview into what transpires uh, day to day, week to week. This week, I turned in two director's cuts for uh, my episodes of You. As I mentioned before, I did episode 307 and 308 um, of season three, episode seven and eight of a 10 episode season. Very, very challenging episodes, very, very uh, uh, revelatory for the plot. So can't tell you nothing about it, but I uh, had some really cool stunt sequences where I got to work with uh, storyboard artist Bridget Shaw, who worked on my book and I first worked with on Silicon Valley, and that was incredibly fun. When the episodes drop, I will probably bring her back on and we'll talk about that specifically. Um, but, you know, for the the logistics and the mathematics of that, on a director's cut for a one hour show, you get four days to deliver your cut. So essentially, I had eight days to deliver these two different episodes. Um, as an aside, for a half hour show, you get two days. When you receive your editor's cut, which is the first thing that you get, you will be given something that's you know, not trimmed. The air is not necessarily cut out of it. Um, if there's anything unique to the episode um, that you've done, you're probably going to have a few tweaks to it because you have a very unique vision for it. But all the other things that fall in line with what the show does more or less week to week are probably going to be very well represented. And you'll be just maybe turning a couple knobs to fine tune that. Uh, this was something that I was doing in the midst of prep 
for the season finale of All Rise. So a lot of the prep on that show, which is mostly Zoom these days, um, with the exception of location scouting, which is self-reports and driving yourself there. Uh, there were a lot of early mornings and late nights where I'd go back and send notes or watch cuts and try and refine uh, those two episodes so they best represented my vision for um, what I saw off of the page. Um, they will be passed on to the producers who will then get their first pass at what uh, first chance to review what you uh, envisioned the episode to be, and then edits will happen from there. Um, so we will see how that turns out. Um, but I think the thing that I've learned over time is that the director's cut is really, um, it's a handshake of two things. You're trying to find out what the show want, showrunner wants, and sometimes they want to see every scene. Other shows they want, uh, they don't have a problem maybe with you lifting lines or jokes or scenes altogether. Um, so that's one of the first things you're trying to confirm. And then it's really, really, really defending your vision for um, the things that are unique to the show. And so I spend a lot of time working on transitions and stunts and things that were not going to be in any other episode because they were unique to mine. And I feel very good about what we handed in. So uh, those two were handed in uh, on day two of shooting for me. So it was a little bit of a relief to check that off the box uh, while continuing to shoot and prep All Rise, which is going well. Um, I am awaiting an update on a pilot that I pitched for as a director. So hopefully that will work out. I know there's a few directors in the mix, but hopefully um, hopefully my pitch was the one that resonated the most because I was really a really big fan of this uh, one hour drama. And uh, we are going through the process of finalizing the table of contents for my book, Transitions, A Director's Journey and Motivational Handbook. So uh, that's what's going on in my world after this. Um, after we wrap on Friday for All Rise, which will be two, two days after this episode airs, I'll be diving into a heist script that I co-wrote with Candace Sanchez McFarlane, my co-writer on Wednesday morning, uh, and taking an episodic dramedy that we've been pitching and trying to pivot it into the narrative podcast world um, to see if we can't establish it as a narrative podcast develop intellectual property around the idea, and then pitch it as a TV show. And these are some new developments, um, you know, now that I have uh, switched to uh, CAA for representation. So that's another new update. And that'll be a conversation maybe on another episode about, about, those, about those realities in your team. Um, but right now, we're gonna dive into episode 26 with my man, Carl Seaton, uh, he's a director, writer, producer, uh, the originator of Get Fly Fridays, which we'll talk about. But I've known him going back 20 years now when he had done a feature film called One Week. Um, and for those of us, you know, black directors who were on the grime, there were not many of us and we all were at least aware of each other, if not like friendly. But I definitely remember us sharing emails even going back into the early 2000s. But uh, he's directed Supergirl, The Shy, Chicago PD, and Fire, FBI, Batwoman, uh, and Snowfall. And uh, he's one of those guys who leaves a mark on every show. 
um, has a very clear vision, a very unique style, and a very clear uh, way of communicating. So we're going to dive into episode 26 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, starring Mr. Carl Seaton. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Yo, man, I wanted to... Uh, Dive in, man. Where you were telling me before we started, but where'd you first live when you moved to LA? Uh, the jungles, right off of uh, La Brea, and, and well, it was Rodeo then. Now it's Obama, but uh, I was right over there by Dorsey, the track, and uh, yeah, I lived over there. We moved over there like late '99, so it was it was still pretty thick over there, and you know, uh, definitely a blood community. And uh, mm-hmm. it's funny, I lived over there when they were shooting Training Day, and uh-huh. I remember when the blood stole the car in training day and was like the director and Dizzy got to come talk to us. I remember because everybody was talking about it in the neighborhood. And we were like, oh, wow, that's, that's crazy. So it was a lot of adventures going on in the jungle. Every day was a different adventure. You never knew what was going to happen. Cat, you, you see shootouts, you'd hear, you see dead bodies and, you know, cats getting robbed and things like that. Helicopters every night. So it was car chases would end in the jungle because the jungle has so many, so many trees. Right. Helicopters couldn't really follow folks. So cats was always using the jungle as a destination when being chased by cops. Another thing we learned. we picked up on a lot learning that, you know, when we moved out there. Yeah, it's so crazy, man. It's like, uh, it, that's almost like an international thing to some degree. Because I remember I, I did a project in, in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. And when we went to, um, man, what was the name for, I forget the name that, that they had for where, obviously where all the, the African folks live, right? But it was always on the other side of the tracks. And when you got in there, they didn't have any, um, no, none of the homes had numbers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? None of the streets had signs because they wanted it to, if there ever was anything with the cops, they was like, we're not gonna help you find anything because you're already trying to put stuff on us. And the ill part was they had, the, the country had built these like stadium lights that would shine into um, the, the townships. That's what it was, into the townships. Um, so that was their version of the ghetto bird helicopter, like mm-hmm. to, to always be ever present. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's interesting how, 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 uh, how the oppression works, huh? Yeah, man. It's, it's, it's very crafty in how they do it. It's very crafty and very methodical in its mm-hmm. systemic breaking down of things. So, and it does it. Sometimes they do it. Sometimes it's overt and blatant and sometimes it just creeps up on you from behind and you don't even realize what it is. So, yeah. Right. And so you're you're originally from Chicago. You fall into, uh, you know, first, just thanks for being on the show, man. You fall into like one of the brothers that I don't know when we met, but I just kind of always knew about you. I knew about you from one week, your your, yeah. first, your debut feature. Um, but, you know, tell it, tell me about getting your start in Chicago and kind of and, and making that first film, because I know it, it was not a it's never a direct route. Oh, it's never direct route. And even after the film became even more indirect of a road. Um, yeah, growing up in Chicago, man, you know, loving movies, loving TV shows, but never really thought you could do this for a living until I saw uh, Do the Right Thing. And, you know, Spike Lee's movie just, I came out of that theater just transformed. Like, man, I don't know what a director or producer does, but this is what I want to do for, for the rest of my life. I want to tell stories like this and move people the way I was moved coming out of that theater. So that kind of started the quest you know, didn't have any family members in the industry, anything like that, you know, Hollywood and LA and the industry were millions of miles away. So I just really, you know, I, I was like, I don't know how to even go about this, but I'm gonna you know, do my best. And started, you know, just educating myself 
going to film school parallel with also educating myself, reading books and things like that. Like Spike would, you know, make a book after each film. Yeah. So I would read all these books. Those became like my, those like my Bibles, man. He was like, you know, you write to create jobs for yourself. So I said, okay, let me learn how to write. So started, you know, studying screenwriting and things like that. So while in film school, film school was cool. And Where'd you, you know, talking school? Columbia College. Okay, in Chicago, right? In Chicago, yeah, in okay. Chicago. Yeah. So, you know, and that was great because, you know, they gave you cameras, it was, it was more hands-on because I was at a school prior to that that was more theoretical. And I was like, yeah, this, this theory-based thing isn't gonna work for me. I gotta be out here, I gotta do it. I gotta be out, you know, actually making films and learning how to craft a story, you know, cinematically, you know, making them, you know, typical student film mistakes and such. But uh, mm -hmm. Columbia was great for that. And while I was there, I, you know, kept writing, kept writing and started doing short films. And after graduation, well, prior to graduation, I invited my family. I got a big family on both sides. So I invited everybody knowing they weren't gonna make it, but they would send me money. And I used that money with my buddy, we we put, we put our money together and did a short. And this, you know, we shot on 16 millimeter, edited on an Abbott. So it took us like two years to get that short done, man. It was it was a couple of G's, you know, a lot of mistakes we made, you know, cause that was outside of school. So we had to hire the crew, rent the oh, equipment. Wow. So it was a whole different, you know, learning curve doing it on your own when you don't have that safety net of the film school. So that really let me know this, it was like a sink or swim thing. Like, okay, is this something I really want to do? Or is this, is this something I thought I wanted to do? And that right. Confirmed for me that this is something I really wanted to do. Yeah. That's interesting too, man, because I, I remember like teaching at NYU, like we, by they kind of kept the camera away from you uh, for like the first year, year and a half, and had you mm -hmm. focus on audio and have you focus on like the uh, single frame, like can you compose a shot and tell a story image by image. But mm -hmm. junior year was when people made their first short film where it wasn't like anything you could do in. in four hours after in the afternoon, like you had to go get a location and take the gear over the weekend. And the attrition rate of like folks who went from wanting to be a director to be an editor or be a producer <laughs> or be a writer, it was crazy. Cause they were yeah. like, yo, it's, it's so much more than, you know, picking shots and, 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 and having a vision. You got to navigate wild shit that like yeah. you never could imagine would come imagine. your way. Yeah, the curveball is coming in ways you can't imagine. That Murphy's Law applies so much, man. I mean, anything that you could think of goes wrong, that can go wrong will go wrong, and things you couldn't even imagine could go wrong could go right. wrong. So, yeah. What, what was one of the, like, biggest... Like, I had a fire on my, my thesis film, night one. Night one, after having been told that the person who would fund the entire thing was not going to, on the day of checkout, we drive to Jersey and I have a fire in the back of a diner. Um, what, what's kind of your craziest uh, curveball Murphy's Law iteration when you were coming up? Oh man, uh, <laughs> let me see. One in particular that stands out, I had a Rottweiler that I put in the film. And you know, they always say, don't put kids or animals in your film. I had both in my first short. And my Rottweiler didn't like my DP. Oh, and my Rottweiler is a pretty chill Rottweiler for the most part, but not that day. He bit the hell out of my DP, man. He took oh. a chunk out of his hand. I said, I'm about to get sued. I'm about to put my dog down. DP was cool about it because I, we were talking and the DP stepped towards me in the conversation. My dog perceived that as aggression and right. he wasn't having that. And so, and this is like day one of production. Man. On top of the fact that, and then we had a, uh, an ambulance for a certain <laughs> sequence that didn't want to work 
the lights didn't want to work. I mean, you you can't, man, you name it. Our insurance dropped out like Friday at 5 p.m. So we had to find insurance to get the equipment for Saturday morning. So it was, man, it's it's yeah. what what I've learned is it's all problem solving. All you do is really solve problems throughout the day. And, and depending on the low budget, no budget, high budget, you're still solving yeah. these problems all day. That's the that's the that's the job. I you, that just made me think of like when I did a, a Grey's Anatomy episode and I had a I think it was a crossover. So the other show had picked an ambulance for reasons that worked for them. But then I needed I had that patient travel into my episode and the ambulance that they picked and the stretcher that they picked wasn't really fully operable. So the things that I wanted to do in my shots to get that ambulance out gracefully were impossible. Yeah. And and you just, you don't, you, 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 who the fuck knew? You, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. So you make, you make the short, um, how was it received? Uh, people, you know, <laughs> it was received that way people were like, interesting, interesting. I mean, it, it was some sci-fi <laughs> out there type, you know, we, we we were ambitious about it, man. It was like this thing about a guy gets hit by a car and instead of dying, he gets his touch of death and goes around touching people and animals and plants, but ends up, this kid gets hit by a car and he touches him, brings him back to life and he he passes. So we went for an ambitious story. So what it was, like I said, it was received like, interesting. Okay, you guys are thinkers, you're not lowbrow with it, but we, we were savvy enough to realize like, okay, we just want to see if we can get one done. We got to get back in the lab, you know what I'm saying? So I was fortunate enough to be, you know, partner with a cat, my brother Kenny Young. We would constantly write, and we were harder on ourselves than anybody. You know, we were harsh critics, man. We didn't sit back and just say, you know, we the shit, you know, because we the shit. We were like, nah, we gotta, we gotta earn this because we knew how competitive the landscape is, and we wanted to be as competitive as possible. So we had, to, we constantly were studying, constantly looking at what we did, putting it down, coming back saying, oh, that was trash. Let's throw that out and start all over. So, you know, but. That short film, getting it done, just proved to us that with the right with the right effort, right attitude, and right resiliency, you know, you can you can you can create something out of nothing. So that kind of gave us that initial catalyst to just kind of keep going, which led us to you know writing and doing one week. Right, right, yeah, man, it's a lot. It, it's so much like like sports to me, right? It's like you you practice something and you know, like, you know, you might not you, your three point shot is not accurate, but you could tell you can get it there. And mm -hmm. so you're gonna keep trying until you do. Yeah, um, yeah. So one week, that was uh, your debut feature. That came out in 2000. Yeah, it, it came out theatrically in 2001. We did the whole. We had a whole festival run in 2000 where we hit a lot of different festivals around the world. So, and yeah, that what, was like that, that was the one that introduced me to, you know, the industry. And uh, we moved out to LA right before it came out. So yeah, it was. Uh, that was, the, that was the one that started it all basically for me. Right. And so how was that? Um, if you can, like, you know, can you speak to budget and 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 how you put that money together? And then and before that, like what it was about and the inspiration behind it. OK, so it was we want we knew we wanted to do an independent film and we knew we couldn't just do any kind of film. We wanted to do something that was unique, that was different. And so we, we were looking, we, we spitballed a whole bunch of different topics. So we came up with a specific topic was a subject matter and then built this topic around it. It's basically about a guy who finds out the week before his wedding that he may have contracted HIV. And he had to wait. And this is back in the day when you, had to, when you took an HIV test, you had to wait a week for the results. That's how long ago this was. Now you right. can do it in two minutes. But back then, you had to wait a week, sometimes two weeks. 
So what we did was we chronicled this movie and you know, we followed his life through this one week while as he waited for his HIV result mm-hmm. and, and all of the choices that it directly affected, which so happened to be at the same time he was getting ready to get married. So uh initially we wrote it, you know, as an all-out comedy, but you know, once again, we wrote it, we sat down on it, we said, you know, we're doing this a disservice. And then we started doing some extensive research about party notification and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of helped us bring the dramatic side to it. So it wasn't just all drama and it wasn't all comedy. It was a, a balance of both. And uh, initially we were pledged by an investor a million dollars to do it. Hmm. But that, you know, for every five people you ask, you know, four will ignore you. One will say yes. And other people to say yes, four out of them five going to flake on you. So we went from being pledged a million, half a million, quarter million. We're like, okay, how much do we actually have? We had like 50,000 bucks amongst ourselves. Right. We were like, yo, let's shoot it. And it was a huge debate in our film community in Chicago. They were like, yo, just shoot a trailer. Use that to make, you know, use that to, you know, recruit investors. And we were like tired of the invest- investor shuffle. We were like, fuck it, man. Let's just shoot it for 50000 Everybody told, we, told us we were crazy. You know, right. instructors, other filmmakers, people we looked up to, they were like, that's insane. You're not going to shoot a film for 35, uh, 35 millimeter <clears throat> for 50000 bucks. But that's right. exactly what we did. You know what I'm saying? Right. We just started piecemealing it. You know, we were like, okay, let's. Get the film. We got the film out of New York. We got short ends out of New York. You know, had them in the fridge. Right. We got a deal of Panavision. You know, we got the grip truck for a stick. We, we, we just started putting it all together. Like, okay, let's just get it in the can. Then we'll right. figure out post. And then, you know, so we, we broke it down into doable steps like that. But uh, right. it was uh, quite an adventure doing it for no money. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, but it, it's literally willing it into existence. Right. How much, and, and just for folks who might not know, because y'all never shot films, short ends are, uh, I guess, you know, magazines would be in 400 feet. And if and anybody had a scene or just there weren't enough, let's say they were down to the last 80 feet and they knew the scene would roll out on mm-hmm. that mag, they just pull it, reload the mag, and that's how you would have short ends. You'd have a bunch yeah. of 80 foot, 50 foot, 20 foot, or maybe it could even be 200 feet if the scene wouldn't be captured on that. And then you could buy that unused film uh, mm-hmm. and put together your project on a, on a cheaper budget. Yeah. yeah. I, this makes me want to, I'm kind of going to hop ahead, but we'll come back to the, to the chronology of what you're doing. How, how did you, do you find it challenging to, remove that like indie hustle sensibility and like go-to toolkit that you have when working in TV. And no, by the actually, man, I, I hear you say, it's actually become one of my superpowers. Mm-hmm. I used to be really embarrassed of all the budgets I work with. Like, I mean, the, of all my features, the biggest budget I've had was like maybe 600,000 for the mm-hmm. features. But I've done shorts for like $3,000, $200, you know, and because of these type of budgets, I prepare in a way like I don't have a safety net. I'll never be in this location again. I'll never have this opportunity again. So I have to make sure I can cover myself evenly. So I, my preparation game was, was built off of that. And I apply it, you know, even in, 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 in these TV shows, you know what I'm saying? And, and even, even in applying it to these TV shows allows me to get, to go above and beyond getting extra coverage Getting making the day, you know what I'm saying, and and not just making the day, but being able to put some some nuance and style on it as well, and that's all because of the preparation. Because my my prep game really got extensive. Like, okay, we can only afford, like you said, when you got short ends, it's 400 feet or less. Like, there's a rollout. 
Like there's no, like with digital, you just reset, go again, reset, go again. But with film, like there's no go again. And I, you know, you talk to the ass like, hey, listen, I know you're having a hard time with it, but you gotta get this, this all, we got 75 feet. So we gotta get this going. And you know, and it, the, the rehearsal game and all that kind of stuff. So like I said, that preparation game from that no budget filmmaking has been a huge advantage to me that I can apply to these shows that are four million and five million dollars and such. I remember I was doing, um, man, this is what got me into the DGA. And it was like, uh, I had 12 to 15 pages and I had a 10 hour day. It was due north for Insecure, mm -hmm. the show within the show. Yeah. And we were doing the end like dinner scene with like a fight and all this wildness. And I was like, I, I'm looking at the clock, like it ain't gonna happen. Like this shit literally is not, it, there's, it's just not possible in the available time. And I was like, I, I got to reveal who I am. And so I was like, look, are y'all comfortable? <laughs> we'll rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. And then when we get down to 30 minutes left, we'll shoot it. And I'm just going to call freeze and then put the camera where the next setup would be in my edit. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, okay. And it's like Regina Hall, Michael J. White, like Scott Foley. And I'm like, this shit gonna look mad. I'm gonna look like the most lowliest budget dude ever. But people are like, word, okay, let's let's get it. Yeah. And it's funny how even that that can be invigorating maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, because, you know, they get into a routine of coverage. When, right. you come with a, when you come in and mix it up, they're like, oh, I gotta be on my game now so we can execute X, Y, and Z. You know, like you come in with a real cool one -er, it's almost like theater. Like you got to tap into your theater aspect, getting your theater bag because that camera's moving. And right. I'm not yelling, we're just going to keep moving with it. So, but yeah, man, but you got to tap, having that background, like I said, I was ashamed of it for a little bit because you'd be around other filmmakers who've only done films of $10 million up. And they're like, how do you even do a movie for a million dollars? I'm like, now nah, I don't know. I've never done a movie for a million dollars. I'm right. sitting here like right. with a level of embarrassment, but I realized over the years, like, oh no, this isn't, this is a superpower, actually. So, cause you tap in, you and you know when you got to tap into it because your gut is like, yo, you don't have enough time, you don't have all the coverage you need, you can't cut this to tell the story you need to tell. Right. What you gonna do? And then that yep. spider says, like, you got to make a choice, and then you kick in, and everybody's like, oh, okay. and then they come at you. We've never done that before. That's that was actually kind of cool. And everybody gets excited and galvanized and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, so, it's a, it, I think it's the it's the winning formula, man, to to a long career. Yeah. Um. So, so you make the film, you travel the festival circuit. How, what, what, what did that look like? After all the hard, the hard work, you made it for 50K. What did the life, what was the life of the film after that? It was, you know, it was very interesting life. So we'd go to these festivals. We, we won ABFF, we won Urban World, Pan-African, you know, it, it went to Fespaco, it was in Toronto. So we, we had all this festival love, but distributors were like not fucking with us. Right. They would tell us to our face, like, yeah, this movie's too smart for black people. <laughs> I'm like, wow. So, you know, it was, it was, it was bittersweet in that regard. Like, we go to these festivals getting all this adoration and love, but right. we're still living in the jungle. You know what I'm saying? We're still trying to figure out, like, yo, rent due on the first. So we got to figure out how to do this and do that and so forth. So, you know, but in, in doing that, I realized there was there was something, there was a disconnect. Like the emotional impact of the story is what hit people. But I do, I, I, real, I was sad enough to realize the craftsmanship of the film wasn't up to par to be competitive. Mm. So I said, I have some more learning I gotta do. I gotta get back in the lab as a director, not necessarily as a writer, but as a director and step my craft up. I can't just sit back and get complacent. Like I got all these trophies and these awards, but I'm like, nah, something is lacking here. So let me get back in the lab. Now, do you feel, um, 
Do you feel it was lacking in terms of production value or in terms of like what you did with your available resources? Both. Both. Okay. I mean, it, you know, you, hindsight is always twenty twenty. You look back like, what the fuck was I thinking when I did that? Man, I could have done this and this. And, I mean, you know, you look back in hindsight through the lens of today with much more experience. Right. And I'm like, man, and just in terms of coverage and just, you know, composition, pacing, little things like that that, you know, I wasn't really thinking about. Like, well, for example, there's a lot of profanity. And our film was almost rated NC-17 just because of the fact. And when we were making it, I didn't see a problem with the profanity. I didn't even really, it didn't stand out to me. But I'm like, you know, had we just modified the profanity, this movie would have been PG-13, which could have allowed us to, we could have gotten contracts in public school systems and all that. So we literally walked away from millions just because of language. You know what I'm right. saying? And that's something, a lesson you learn, you know what I'm saying? So that that's the biggest thing, le learning lessons and being mindful enough to say, okay, what's the lesson here? So like I said, it was ironic. It was, it was bittersweet. You know, we're getting this adoration, love and, People, people are still fans of the film. People still hit me up about it. Yeah. And because uh, it still comes on like World AIDS Day, uh, usually on BT or uh, Black Stars picks it up, picked it up. So it, it it has it still has a life. Unfortunately, 20 years later, it's still a relevant topic in the African-American community because HIV right. is still there. So, you know, that's <clears throat> that's one of the cons of it. But, uh, you know, you're just looking back at that, just like the lessons like, OK, I could have done this. I could have done this. You know, it's always a woulda, coulda, shoulda. So, right. you know. So what did you say? I Carl, next project, here's what you got to do. Like what were, I don't know, like two or three of the things that you were intent ab ab about uh, applying to your next directorial outing. I said, I had, I had to move the camera and I had, I had to move two things, move the camera and move my talent. So blocking and coverage, I had to step my game up on that. And what's funny is I didn't really understand that until after the fact, I was like, okay, what, what am I missing here? And I started just looking at other films. And I, and that's, when I, that's when I started watching films with the sound off. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And, and that, that made me see it like, oh, okay. Cause you know, with the sound design that helps mask a lot of things or it just kind of, it seduces you into the story. But right. if you mute it, you can see it just strictly from a composition perspective. Like, oh, okay. So these Spielberg wonders and, and, and various takes like, oh, okay, now I see how that was achieved. How that went from this, wide to a 50-50 to an over the shot to a close-up and over the shoulder and so forth. So you just start looking at it from a different way. And then also being in LA, being around filmmakers that do this for a living. I, was, I had the opportunity, I was talking to cast like Bill Duke and Reggie Hutland and they would just be dropping game on me and, and John Singleton as well. And I'm just, I'm just taking it all in like a sponge. I'm still a sponge, man. And right. I've been fortunate enough to be around great filmmakers that, that cast been doing it for 30, 40 years. I'm like, yo, I'm still learning. I'm still right. trying to figure this out. I'm like, Okay, that's the path I want to be on at Eternal Studio. So you know it's an interesting thing too. Like I, I don't think I know, and I could totally just be ignorant or not be aware of, of enough, but I know in my film school education, I never had a class on blocking. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I I don't believe there's one at the film school I went to. I don't know of anyone that's told me about a class on blocking that they took. And that is your number one responsibility. You can't, like, before you put, you, you pick the shot, you gotta decide if these motherfuckers is moving, yeah. right? And, and and so, like, what the it's amazing that that hasn't been almost like, understand subtext, and now think about how that applies to whether or not these people move or not, and how. And, and how. then think about how you're gonna shoot it. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, man, I, I have some qualms with, with film schools in general because, you know, when I got out to LA and was getting kicked in the teeth on a regular, I went back to my film school instructors like, yo, you didn't tell me shit about any of this. What's up? And they were like, I've never been to LA. I wouldn't know. So I'm right. like, okay, you, your track was education, but I'm in the practical industry and they aren't necessarily on the same path. I'm like, wow, what I'm learning out here, like you said, no one ever discussed blocking or, mm -hmm. or in that regard. And not just blocking, but how to elicit performances in a concise, short amount of time. And a lot of, there's so many nuances in, in storytelling that are never discussed or even scratched the surface of right. film school, pushed out like, good luck. Yeah. Transitions. Yeah, right? transitions. Yeah. Again, I, I bring these two things up specifically just because I feel like in TV, they are, they're like both the director's offense and defense, right? Mm -hmm. Like you yep. can, like you block efficiently and, and, and creatively and, and smart and, and, and smartly, I don't know if that's a word, but uh, intelligently, and then people buy in, then the show gets shot, the scene gets shot the way you envisioned it. Even if you can't mm -hmm. change the way they, they are gonna like, you know, break down that scene in terms of coverage. And then when you get into the um, transitions, more often than not, they ain't even looking at that when you do it, right? So you, you'd be like, oh yeah, and so like, and then you slide off of that at the end, right? And then you come in yeah. and on the next scene, four days later, yo, slide into that. And they're like, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And then and then you cut it together and people are like, yo, Carl killed that. And yeah, yeah. They're never checking for that. That did not. They say the lines. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. What, what, what have you found to be, have you developed a superpower or a toolkit for dealing with difficult, challenging talent? <laughs> yeah, uh, still, still learning that. That's that's a whoo, yeah. That's that's still a um, that's a learning curve right there. Yeah. But I, I have a couple ways I've learned to maneuver around some of them because some of them you just got to accept for who they are. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> I was working with an actor once. Older, 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 older gentleman who's been in the game forever, just cantankerous. Like right. I gave him a note, he <laughs> he challenged the note, he refuted the note, but then he did exactly what I asked. It was hilarious. Right. And I was like, this is just his this is just his process. So the biggest thing I learned was, man, don't take this personal. Don't uh -huh. take it personal. Whatever they, whatever this thing may be with them, it may have nothing to do with you. So the first thing was to not take it personal. Mm -hmm. uh, the, another thing I've learned to do with some actors that are like that is direct the fuck out of everybody around them uh -huh. and leave them on the island and yep. let them see me directing everybody around them. Right. And then when they, they see that they're on this island. I come and give them one little simple doable note mm -hmm. and they pounce on it. And right. that's how you break it down. But, but, but what I really like to do with difficult actors, I, I, and usually, you know, people give you a heads up who's difficult. They all know who they are. Right. I try to have conversations with them as early as possible to let them know that I'm not just here as, as a, you know, a traffic cop. I'm here to really tell the best story and elicit the best performance and try to figure out how they like to work. You know, right. what works best for them? How best can I elicit the best performance for them and so forth? And that helps break down a lot. But even still, you know, you get on set, you still, you know. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what do you do when you do that? And then you still find like, you know. It, it it ain't working. Like, have you ever had to, have you ever had to like, you know, arch your back up a little bit, you know, hit them with the bass, you know what I mean? Like, like have, have any of those 
instances happened or you know, uh, they haven't, man. But I'm I'm also six four, so uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> that hasn't happened. But there have been times where you know we have to have discussions and right. a couple different things, man. We'd have to have discussions, and I let them know like I'm not just gonna let this ride and just say whatever you say because you know I know what's at stake here, and, and I I know I'm fighting for the story. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I let them know, like, this is for the story. This isn't about me. I, I don't personalize it. So, right. you know, digging in like that. And then also I, I've had situations where an actor can lose themselves and not re- remember where they were and just kind of stand with them. Like, I'm with you on this. Let's, bre- let's break this down into doable steps. And I think the biggest thing is just breaking it down piece by piece as opposed to looking at it from the macro. I hit it from the micro. So beat by beat. So, we're, we're you know, we're checking these beats off in this scene so that we can get this performance. Cause in my head, I got a checklist. Like I got to get this to beat. I got to get this beat. I got to get this beat. Once I get these three, four beats from them in this scene, I'm good. So I just check them off, check them off, check them off. So, yeah. and like I said, let's say I got four beats. Sometimes I may only get three, but right. I'll take that. I try to get the majority of the beats. That's that's, that's usually my, my, my assignment for me. Like, okay, I may not get all five or six in this scene. But I'm trying to get, if not all of them, at least five or, you know, right. the majority of them. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting, man, because I'm I'm finding as I uh, diversify the type of shows, right, where you go from one thing where you're doing a show where somebody's done this character 80, 100, you know, whatever, how many times, and then other times you might be, uh, and so so what happens there is sometimes they there's might be a baked in kind of Shtick. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I'm trying to pick a positive word, but like there, there's something baked in that maybe might be reluctant to like kind of finding nuances because maybe they took a big swing early on and saw that it didn't work or it gets cut out, so they don't want to. But you're maybe trying to thread the needle a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then there's times where like on the smaller, um, not smaller, but on the shows that might uh, be premium cable streaming where they're only doing 10 episodes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then something might, you might arrive when there's a big story shift for the character and it's so far from what they've done the prior two, three, four seasons that sometimes they might not have been cast for that type of performance, but that's mm-hmm. where the character's gone. Mm-hmm. And there's a disconnect between like what they think the character would do. Yeah. Yeah, the character's never done it. Yeah. And so, and so you're trying to finesse these, like, um, you can only get what somebody's willing to agree upon conveying, but it becomes an interesting negotiation at times. It, it does. And what, I, what I've learned in that situation, sometimes, you know, you, you, you let them get that routine performance out, sometimes once or twice. But that third take, I come in like, hey, I got that. I have that. Let's change it up. A bit. Let's let's try something different right here. Let's experiment. Let's try this. And and I don't just say let's try this. I say here's why I want you to try this. Right. And and I've learned giving them the why is damn more important than the try because they're right. like okay now I understand why you the why helps fuel the understanding and they're like oh that makes sense okay right. that's cool right. yeah. Well, that's a great that's a great approach. And also there's, you know, actors are flooded with so many, you know, they're trying to remember lines that that when they read the table read, now you're shooting it and it's had five other revisions. So there's there's remnants of what they read that are still kind of there. And 
how can you kind of redirect or direct it and kind of get everybody back on the page of what it needs to be. Hey, this is Rob McElhenney, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's upcoming book from Michael Weezy Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him a start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions. A Director's Journey and Motivational Handbook is coming soon. So you did a few shorts after after making a feature? Like how, what was the, what was the road at, you know, 2001, 2002? What were you doing at that point? So 2001, I did this indie film with, uh, with Nas, Isaiah Washington, at least Neil, that never got completed, thank God. Because yeah. <laughs> it was overly ambitious. Uh, I got... I got hired to do it. I was so hungry to direct. I said, I'll take anything. I'll do it. And that was like my first project in LA. And the difference between that one and one week, one week was like a family thing. We were all in it for the love of trying to tell a great story. This film I did in LA was all about, you know, it was, it was just a, a job for a lot of folks. And right. I saw that disconnect. And I was like, oh shit, this is, this is a job. People don't have the passion in any way, shape or form. And then it was, it was just, you know, dealing with, industry shit I'd never dealt with before was like, oh, wow, this is, this is what they talk about. Like, okay, all right. Okay, cool. But like I said, it never got done. It never got completed. But, and then after that, two years later, we sold a script to uh, MGM that uh, then they, they bought, but once MGM got bought by Sony, got put in turnarounds. That was pretty much that. And then I did a, uh, a family drama in 2007 that ended up being one of the, Worst and greatest decisions of my life. Okay. How so? Yeah. Uh, it was a family drama, a faith-based family drama, which okay. I'm not a huge fan of because sometimes they just lack authenticity. But I was broke, needed the job. And I was like, how bad can this experience be? It's two months worth of work for a nice chunk of change. It can't be, it's going to get me to BGA. It can't be that bad. It was that bad. Uh-huh. It was that bad. It was a horrible experience. It It didn't speak to my talent as a filmmaker, that, that's the, that was the biggest hurt, that my name was attached to something that was not indicative of my skill set. But when people wow. see this, they're gonna think this is my skill set. And right. that's what crushed me. Hmm. Oh, that crushed me. I was done for about three years after that. Now, when you say done as far as how you were perceived or done from an internal level? Uh, internal level. Yeah. I, I, I stopped watching movies. I stopped studying. The things I had been doing as a lifestyle for like, 15 years, I wasn't really doing. Huh. And like the first year, I didn't even realize it was a depression. I just realized that I'm just not feeling this. You know, it was, it was a heartbreaking experience and not knowing how to handle it, not even knowing what it was, was just debilitating and paralyzing. So, right. you know, by year two is when I realized like, oh, I think I'm in a deep depression. I think I'd read some, I said, oh wait, I'm checking off all these boxes. I think that's me. And uh, yeah, just kind of wallowing in that, like, man, if this is what this industry entails, I don't really know if 
I didn't want something like this because this was uh, such a horrendous experience. And it and you can't attribute it to racism because it wasn't a racist thing. It wasn't systemic oppression. This was something done for us by us type of situation. So right. made, which made it more cloudy. So yeah, just going through that, I was like, hey, but the lesson I learned was listening to my gut because my gut screaming all along, don't do it. Right. Don't do this. But my pocket was like, Oh, we doing this, right? Oh, we right, about right. this, definitely. you know, and that's the battle. You know, you know, what I'm saying you battle with that, like the struggle and the grind and financial opportunities and you know all that kind of stuff. It sounds like though, you know, perhaps that was the valley of the career. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, like those valleys are where you find your 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 real compass because when you you know, start getting the keys. And even now, like you, you can, you're probably making really good decisions clearly on what you do want to do and don't want to do, you know, as a director that you, you make that decision too too late, man, that's, that can be rough, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, So that's why, and that's, that's why I'm grateful that I had that Valley when I had it, you know what I'm saying? On, on this low budget film, as opposed to, a $50 million film or something like that. And I started looking at other filmmakers that experienced these type of situations. You know, like Guillermo del Toro, he had, he had to experience that on the film. You know, uh, Brother Alien 3, he experienced the same. I mean, this this happens. And right. you hit that valley and you kind of learn the lessons in that valley and then you, you know, you come out of it. But you're right, I definitely make much clearer decisions now where I know like, I don't want that. So let's right. go in the other direction. So that that, that has definitely helped. So. You know, it's it's one of them battles. It's one of them, it's one of them scars on your body where you had twenty five stitches, but it's healed right. up. But you still got the scar for it. And you and and if you didn't do it, you'd you know now if you had never done that, that situation would come up and you'd be like, man, it, it won't be that bad. It, it, yeah, it, right. You know what I mean? But now yeah. you know, like, nah, that shit. Yeah, it's a price to pay. It's a price to pay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that little voice here, like, how bad can it be? Like, man, shut the fuck up. No, right. no, no, we're not. Right, 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 right. And and now maybe that changes when 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 the number changes, right? It, like um, there might be a number where you might be like, well, damn, 10 million. You know, man, at one see, that's the thing. And that's how LA can seduce you. Because like, uh-huh. man, how bad could it be for this number? But man, after talking to certain filmmakers that live in Malibu with a big ass house and a lot of money, but are angry and depressed and just mm-hmm. just totally messed up mentally, right. I'm like, you know. That that number, that price is high, you know what I'm saying? And I don't know if I even want to deal with that for my spirit, you know what I'm saying? And that's the thing, you, you realize like you gotta take, you gotta protect your spirit. Right. I will say this. I I I wonder, and I don't know what folks are telling themselves when they when they take this, you know, hypothetical $10 million paycheck, right? But I've always felt that if I did do one of them, one of those. I would be like, okay, cool, whatever. I understand what I'm doing here, but I'm about to put two million in this feature. Don't nobody want to make, you know. And I feel like, like if you if you keep that connection to the to the drive, because you know everything that I ever did was funded either I raised the money or after like I, I started building my production company, I took thirty k and made a short, mm-hmm. you know, because I was like, yo, don't 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 be the guy who says, oh, they're not messing with me. Like, go do it yourself. Right. And maybe, you know, I've yet to see anybody go and do that. You know what I mean? Somebody take that paycheck, do that job, you know, and then pivot. Because you hear about like, um, I think George Clooney talks about like Batman allowed him to then make only the decisions that he wanted to moving forward. Mm-hmm. And then you start seeing out of sight and yeah. 
America, the America, what Americana and, and all the kind, you know, let me do fail safe live on TV, yeah. you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, it'd be nice to have an example of that because there's such a, I feel like we got the money out there for, to support all the stories that you and I know could be made from the filmmakers that have unique voices and want to kind of push the envelope on, on, on the black experience in a narrative sense but the money just doesn't seem to be put toward it. And I think well, we have- how the money finds itself in, in projects, like why do you want to tell that story again? You know what I'm saying? Right. So that, that, that happens. But you also, you spoke, you spoke to a great point, man. A lot of creators sometimes don't even think about the do for self aspect. They want to be, it's like they want to be employees more so than saying, let me create and generate a whole different thing with what you've given me let me it's basically reinvestment you know they don't really right. think like that they're thinking like with this hundred million dollar movie i'm gonna swing for the fences and get a grand slam as opposed to okay y'all gonna pay me this amount like you said i'll take a percentage of that and go do what i really want to do and then keep it moving and, and so forth right. but a lot of people don't even have that that mindset right yeah and that, and then that's a much bigger you know that that's a whole analysis on systemic oppression and and mindset I, have you watched this um this doc uh it's on hbo max now exterminate the brutes no i i just heard about that joint that's on my list when i get back in the states man yeah yeah man that we're we're it's four parts we've watched we sat down and watched three in a row um and it just it really gets into how we've gotten here and how it's all a psychological uh uh you know mindfuck that's been perpetrated by folks so they could have power mm -hmm. and, and create a psychology in themselves and in those beneath them to maintain it. Mm -hmm. And the trickle down effect of that is inclusive in what you're saying in like, you know, the idea of reinvestment, the idea of like calculated risk. It's just not something that, that we, that we absorb or, no. or lock to yeah. and understandably. Yeah. You, know, mm -hmm. you spending 50K on one week, me, you know, spending six years raising money for premium and paying myself $15,000 for my six years of work, you know, like that's, you know, you got to be cut a little different. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot, of, it's so funny, man, because as the years go on and things haven't happened for you, your, your friends and family who love you start saying things like, you're so smart. Why don't you try this career? Why don't you try this? And and look into this and so forth because you know because of systemic oppression and various things and lacks of opportunity for people of color everybody just wants you know job security and job right. protection and, and and a sense of stability i guess right. because you know and I, I get it you know because you know coming up under an oppressive situation is so unstable and you right. don't really want to see anybody living like that but like you said some you know once you make this commitment like back in the day man i was i think i was 22 me and my boy made this plan. It's like, we're going to do this and we're going to walk the earth. That's it. And, huh. and you know, it, it becomes that, that we made that proclamation back then. But, you know, we always reminded ourselves of that proclamation. Like, remember, man, it's this or walk the earth so that because you'll get job offers that could be like, oh, wow, that's a whole new career. I never thought about that. But at the end of the day, you have to remind yourself, like, OK, is this what you really want to do? And ultimately, it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I have to constantly go back to the essence of this or walk the earth. So, right. That's awesome, man. That, that's a beautiful transition because I was going to ask you, when did you start having an eye on television? And my question is, was stability 
a, a factor in that, you know, uh, or what made you want to move into TV? Well, so two things. I, I took a job in 05 as a director's assistant on a TV show called What About Brian? And I didn't really know much about TV, but I remember back in 2000, Bill Duke telling me this, and he put it in such a way that it was indisputable. He said, you know, you buy nice cars and trinkets with films. You buy properties with TV. I was like, because I was showering him on a, a show, City of Angels, mm-hmm. and, and watching him work, and, and it was like, wow, this is, is the trip. And uh, so I remembered that. And then when I got this job as a director's assistant on this TV show, I was exposed to a whole new world. And this is still when TV was still looked at as like, you know, the little brother or a step down from film where filmmakers right. were filmmakers and TV was, oh, that's just TV, you know. But as I, as I had that job, I started watching more television. And I started seeing this um, upcoming wave, like, oh, TV storytelling is about to jump the shark. You know, it's, it's about to... It's about to eclipse the stories that are being told cinematically in the theaters and so forth. Because, you know, while TV is getting better, movies are getting, you know, they're, 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 t- they're telling less interesting stories and going for the larger tentpole stories. So I'm seeing right. all this happening. I'm like, well, let me see what's up with this TV. But, and then also there is a degree of that stability because I'm like, okay, I can do TV, tell multiple different stories, have that stability and still strengthen my core as a filmmaker. You know what I'm saying? Because exactly. my ultimate goal was to, to 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 direct for a living. You know what I'm saying? And I kept it broad like that so I wouldn't be locked into no box or give myself strict print. I said, I just want to do this for a living. You know right. what I'm saying? Whatever that may entail, I want to direct for a living. And television started to, to turn into that gateway. And as like I said, this is 05, 06. And shortly after that, these TV shows just started popping up that were just mind blowing like, wow, this show and then that show and this network and this network and so forth. So that is what really helped solidify it. And that helped reaffirm my drive. And I really started getting into television, man. So it became, uh, I started finding myself watching way more TV shows than films. Now, how'd you get your first job? Oh, that's a great one, man. Oh, so your first episode directing. First, first episode came via big bro, John Singleton. So mm. I, he got me an interview with Marvista, the company that was producing his TV show, Rebel. And in that interview, you know, I went in there. So, Leading up to that interview, I t- let me take that back. I've been trying to get into TV since 2006, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to get opportunities, trying to get into programs and so forth, getting, you know, no love, nothing like that. And, but what I was doing as a DJ member, I would attend all the workshops, all the panels. So that film everything. got you into the DGA, the film you mentioned did get you in. That's what that means. Right. So I said, all right, let me, let me, let me maximize this resource that is the DGA because this is an amazing resource. You know, if you, in terms of education, they got a library, an archive library where you have craftsmen that are directors, ADs, UPMs, just talking about their stories and their lessons and things of that nature. And in my opinion, it's better than film school because it's real time. It's, it's lived experience that you can incorporate into, you know, what you're doing. So I prepared, prepared, not knowing when the opportunity would come, but I kept preparing, preparing and preparing so that when I got that interview, I, I knew the language to speak in the in the room to let them know he's going to protect protect the story, performance, and the money. Right. So that, so I booked those two episodes of Rebel and that's what really got me going. That led to- uh, Now, what, my, was that 2016? That was uh, fall of 2016. All right. Yeah, I, that, okay. Man, I didn't realize that those were the first ones that you did. Yeah, those was the first two. Okay, yeah. okay. And, so. and I booked them. I, I reached out to John while I was shadowing on Chicago PD. 
and about Rebel and so forth. So the, the I was shadowing on PD, and then a month later, I booked the Rebels, and then kept meeting with all the execs and so forth, and got my episode, my first episode of PD, which led to the second one. And now, how how did you end up shadowing on Chicago PD? So what I, I did a a, a a TV film called Bad Dad Rehab for TV One, mm-hmm. and I used because I knew I needed representation to really get into the rooms I wanted to get into, so I used that film to get an agent who specialized in episodic television. Got it. And when I got with my agent, you know, I, I gave him a strategy, like these are the shows I'm gunning for. This is the lane I want to get into and so forth. And I targeted PD and fire med because I'm from Chicago. I know that landscape and so forth. And uh, so he got me a meeting with uh, this right-hand man, Peter Jankowski. We met for like 15 minutes and he had a straight poker face the whole time. So my agent was like, how the meeting go? I'm like, I really don't know, honestly. I can't really say. This, the, this dude's paper face, his poker face is amazing. So I, I don't know. But turned out it, it, it went much better than I thought it did. So uh-huh. he got me meeting with the producing director in Chicago that next week because I was going to be in the city. And he said, well, I'm directing an episode in two weeks. You want to shadow? I'm like, I'll be back. And I came back and shadowed for that. Man. So what I love here is the is the specificity, man, of 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 focus for your career and your goals. And then also, like, what are the available resources that you can maximize at every step? And, you know, a lot of folks, you know, sit there and have that libraries available to them and they don't watch them. And even more so now, it's like, you got Netflix, man. You got Hulu, you got um, uh, Mubi, Criterion Collection, you know, like you have, there's no reason to not be versed in, in, in the history of of this craft, I, I sometimes I'll, I'll talk and I, I mentioned something. I was like, "This is kind of like a Lolita kind of moment." And someone was like, "I don't know the reference." And I was like, "Okay, so you know what I mean? Like, that's like how you not gonna know Gaudi if you're an architect or, or Frank Lloyd Wright? Like, you these are things that you I'm, I think you required to know, and they're easily discovered." Well, um, you know, because I talked to a lot of young filmmakers as well, man. I remember talking to one. And I said, you know, it's, it's like what Jonathan Demi did. And she's like, well, who's Jonathan Demi? I said, man, listen, don't ever do yourself a favor and go watch all of his movies, read all of his books. He has a book about interviews about Jonathan Demi, all that kind of stuff. I said, you have to educate yourself so you can speak this language. If you want right. to be taken seriously. You got to, this, this is the language of the, the world you want to immerse yourself in. So right. you have to be serious. So, right. Yeah. Exactly, man. So, so you got those two and then, and then you did well, uh, shadowing, you know, shadowing is something that comes up a lot on, on the show here. Like, how did you approach that? What were, what were you doing day to day on, on those, I imagine maybe seven days of prep, eight days of shooting on Chicago PD? So in prep, I approached it like I was directing the episode. That was the biggest thing I did. I said, in my head, I'm directing this episode. So in, in, in the meetings, any questions asked, I'm writing down my answers and p- comparing it to his answers and so forth. All while I'm, you know, I'm going over the script, I'm looking at the plot points, I'm looking at the storylines and so forth. And I remember on my last day of prep, I gave the director my shot list. I had shot listed the entire episode before we, you know, before we even started. And I said, yo, man, here's my shot. I just want to show you this, how I like to get down. And he was just like, holy shit, this is cool, man. I've never done a shot list before. This is cool. He's an old school cat. So... <laughs> He's like, can I use some of your shots? I'm like, man, I'll be on it. Have at it, bro. Have at it. So, and then every day I'd show up, I'd have my shots with me and I'm taking notes throughout the day, you know? And I was, for the most part, very quiet on set until someone asked me a question. If they asked me a question, I had to answer, but I was never just arbitrarily talking, you know? So 
I, I've learned that, you know, when, when you're a shadow, you know, it's, it's best to just literally shadow, observe. Don't get in the way, find your moments. Like I would find my moments to ask him questions. And it, it would usually be towards the end of the day when things yeah. are starting to wind down and it's pretty much over. But when you're in the heat, when he's in the thick of it, I'm like, he does not need me saying, hey man, what? So why are you doing this here? No, nah, no. Nah. Right. And I, I tell cats now, like if you shout on somebody, what find are you your mom. argument about? What is going on here? Like, not not now, not now. That, that and that can be a a great way to, you know, for them to see, like, okay, this guy gets it. He understands the pace, the momentum, the intensity, the, mm-hmm. the level of involvement, you know, and what it takes to, you know, pull this show off. So so in doing that, and plus be be being so the beauty of it is. Me being from, I'm a Chicago kid. I'm on a set in Chicago. There were a couple of people on the crew that worked on my first film. Wow. They were like, yo, we love Carl. He's great, blah, 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 blah. So people were rooting for me in that regard. You know what I'm saying? So when I did my first episode, I mean, the cast, the crew, they were all like, yo, he's a homeboy. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like I was just some cat coming from out of space. I was like, this guy's, you know, from here, grew up here and all that. So it was a, a you know a rallying cry to definitely support me in that regard. Now, I want to ask if you had a similar experience because I had maybe my first five shows. There was some connective tissue, like you're mentioning, to the stakeholders of the show. Whether it was I had shadowed on Blackish, you know what I mean. I had shot a, a, a branded content promo with uh, the kids from Grownish um, for Walmart. You know what I mean. Uh, I had shadowed on Greenleaf, but the first time I showed up somewhere I hadn't shadowed, it felt very, 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 very different. The, 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 the sense of support was not kind of as clear. Um, can you speak to your first episode where you were, Carl, hi, I'm the director. I, I, I don't have a bunch of credits that you are gonna look at and say, I'm, I should breathe easy. Like, what was that like when you walked into that environment? Well, that was actually my, after I did Rebel, my very first episode after Rebel was the original. CW mm. show with Julie Play. And nobody knew me on the original. That was down in Atlanta, actually in Conyers, this town outside of Atlanta. Uh-huh. Nobody knew me from Adam. They'd never seen me, never heard of me before. So what won them over was my work ethic. I mean, I would literally be in there from 9 a.m. to 9, 9.30 at night, just getting things. It, it was so intense for me because I was like, I looked at it as I've got to maximize this opportunity because this can help project me further. Mm-hmm. I was going so hard. My AD and DP came in the room like at eight o'clock one night. They're like, Carl, go home, man. You're going way too hard. Just go home. Like, guys, I hear you, but I got to get, I, I got to, I got to do this. And I got to make sure this is right, this is right, this is right. And they were, I mean, they saw how hard I was going. They were like, man, this dude is all invested. And then the cast as well, I got a great rapport with the cast because a couple of the guys had directed episodes. So they all had an affinity to what I was doing. And I remember one actor, because they told me some of the actors could be a handful, but I never experienced that because I was talking story with them. But I remember on, on one day in particular, I had my shot list and I left it on the ground near the actor. He got wow. a chance to take a look at it. And back then I had my shots on there, had notes from the tone meeting. I had a, it was a straight manual. Right. He looked over at the shot list. He was like, okay. And I, I mean, like I said, it, it was a, it was a cool experience because I was going so hard. I was so locked in, like, man, I, I, I was unwavering with it and just so focused and so prepared. That's, that's another thing. I was so prepared and had so many things mapped out. Like I remember 
And that's another thing. Uh, one day in particular, I got like 72 setups, which mm. they said was a record of some sort. And I was like, okay, cool. That's that's great. But that once again, that comes from having a tactical game plan that everybody can follow and that everybody's aware of. So we're all moving in the same direction. So right. that made everybody fans. Do you prepare any differently now uh, at this point of your career? Is it as, as uh What's the adjective? Are you going as I don't want because I don't I don't want to say you you would be going less hard, but has anything changed in your prep in terms? Yeah, of- Yeah, I uh, prep smarter. Mm-hmm. So every every show I'm learning something from that I can incorporate into the next show. It's a compounding interest type of situation. So uh, the way I prep now, the way I prep back then is because I had so much more to learn, right? And I was just kind of like, let me just cover all angles so that you know. Let me, let me cover as many bases as I can with this prep. But now as I've acquired even more experience as I prep, I still spend my time invested in the story and reading and, and things of that nature, but I just prep smarter. So it's not as, uh, I'm not buried in the books like I was before. It's more so uh, I'm thinking, I'm incorporating prior experiences and, and coming up with ideas. And then also looking at it like, I always try to do at least one thing in every show that makes me nervous or makes me scared. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. so I can stay on my toes, you know what I'm saying? That there's always this one sequence. I'm like, they either gonna love this or they gonna hate my ass, but I gotta right. go for it. Right. And that's 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 worked for me in a lot of different ways on a lot of different shows. So that's become one of my and and getting comfortable in that nervousness. Like, I, yeah, I'm scared as hell, but I got the courage to keep moving through it. And let's see right. what happens. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And that and also too, it, it it's such a weird psychological game too, right? Because like when you start asking for certain equipment, you know, they start saying, oh, he he, he intends to do something. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, and all of that, all of that is like designed to, I think I've told this story here. Like I was, I remember one time I was like, yo, can, can y'all move? Can we have the, the little parking blocks moved? Um, Cause I know the car has to come in from here, but I want it to end up over here. Cause I want this shot to build into a, a Steadicam you know, at XYZ. And they were like looking down. I was, I could tell they were like, how the fuck are we gonna move them concrete center blocks? But I, I asked because I wanted that. Mm-hmm. And it took two days before they came back and said, no, we can't do it. But I wanted y'all to have those meetings mm-hmm. and be and be thinking about that. You know what I mean? And that, that's the thing, man. That, that That's another thing you can use your advantage, man. When you hit them with, I've learned when you ask the right questions and you propose the right things, it can spark you know, it, they get curious because they're trying to figure out what you're thinking. Or they're like, oh, he's, he's trying to definitely raise the bar for the show in its entirety. And it gets folks excited, man. Like, you know, one show I had, my DP had been doing it for years. He's excited. He's running up and down hills. And one of the operators, the camera was like, man, dude, we haven't seen this guy excited like this. And I don't know how many years, man. What What's going on? I'm like, he, he believes in what we're doing. And that's that's all you can really ask for with anybody. If you get them to believe in what you're doing, that enthusiasm, that, that that excitement comes back that we all had that got us in this industry in the first place. So that's what I always try to tap into. But, you know, it comes with people like, we've never done that on this show. Like, you're right, you have it. That's why it's a really cool time to try it now in season four or season six or whatever. So so, so you've done, how many episodes of TV have you done, uh, would you say? Uh, I am on, I'm currently prepping my uh, 24, 25th. 25 25. episodes. All one hours, right? All one hours, yeah. All one hours. Okay. So 
Um, Cause we started around the same time. I might have a few more, but the virtue of the half hour is just, you get them at a quicker clip. I could do two halves and you're one almost. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. What is what is it that after film school and shorts on the weekend that were that were revelatory, right? <laughs> and then one week, and then uh, more short films and director assistant, and now TV, and then the feature film that was that got you into the guild. Like, what are you now? look at as your responsibility as a director. Um, and and if that is, well, if it's a film, it's this, if it's TV, it's this, you know, feel free to break it down. But like, what's your takeaway now? Like if you were to say like, this is the responsibility of the director. Uh, to tell authentic stories. Like for me, it's, it's, I look at it like this, man, whether it's a film or a TV show, as the director, I'm the first audience member. I'm mm. the first audience member that has the opportunity to manipulate the story to make it even better for the audience after me. So when I approach it like that, there's a reverence with that. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, because I'm the first audience member, I gotta make sure I'm the filter that says, okay, if it's hitting me like this, if we do this, it's gonna hit the audience even more like this. So I'm always thinking of the audience behind me, like, okay, let me sit here in this chair and make sure I'm getting these things that when it's all pieced together, they'll be moved and they'll be sitting there like, wow. Or just, just you know, just hit with, with, with a resonating emotional, you know, influence. Damn, that's, I, I'm, I'm gonna tell you right now, I will be using that and I, I, will, <laughs> I, will, be, uh, I will be giving credit. Uh, I'm tell you, you know what Carl C. Oh, told me? Oh, <laughs> um, good. That, that's dope, man, because that, that also, the protective kind of the protectiveness of how you describe that is should keep you engaged through all the bullshit, right? Exactly. Because it helps you cut through it helps you cut through the bullshit. Like, okay, what are we really here for? What is this really about? You know what I'm saying? Because right. you can really get caught up in the bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Is the bullshit is real good at bullshit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. It, oh, you ain't lying, yeah. man. So, man, that, that's awesome. So what what do you look, you know, if you look at the next um the next few years of the journey, like what are the what are the targets for you? What do you want to do? Um, what do you have your eye on? You know, like what what can we look out for? You know what I mean? You know, it's funny, man, because initially I just wanted to, you know, do episodes and just go from show to show to show telling different stories, but you know, as you grow, as you go, you're exposed to different things. And, and then people talk to you and you have different conversations that just open you up to a lot of different things. So where I am now, man, I, I love going from different shows, telling different stories, but also want to, you know, open more doors for more people of color who, who just need an opportunity like I did. That's number one. And then also, you know, I look at the template of like a Dick Wolf and what he's created, you know what I'm saying? Or even what Issa Rae is about to do, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I can do something like that. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's about planning that and, and just telling broader stories and, and getting away from tropes and, and establishing a, a certain brand of quality. So that if you see my name on something like, okay, he, he coming with some heat, you know what I'm saying? That, that's the biggest thing. So that when I can present other filmmakers, it'd be the same type of situation. 
That's what's up, man. So I got a couple lightning round questions for you. Um, I'll tell you from my end of these conversations, I've been, I've been preparing differently in the sense that I just read up and make sure I'm aware of everybody's work and, and kind of point of view. And then I just try and come here and rap. So uh, I got, these questions have come up to me. Uh, okay. Number one, tell me about Get Fly Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first got in the, in the DGA, I would go sit, in the, I would walk around the lobby of the DGA and I see all these directors in suits. And I was like, wow, I never thought about rocking. I mean, I, I was not a suit guy at all, you know, but I, I made a promise to myself during the Valley. I said, you know, if I ever get to a point where I'm working consistently, I'm gonna remember this moment I'm in and to honor that I'm gonna wear a suit on Friday. So that's where it really started from, rocking a suit on Friday. And it's kind of grown from there because on certain, certain shows, it gets cats excited and they join me like my AD, you know, some of the crew, everybody puts on a suit. So it becomes a thing on Friday. We all take a little group picture and stuff. So it's become a little thing, man, because, you know, it, it reminds them from, you know, some guys usually wear, you know, ties on Friday. But like I said, personally for me, it was, it reminds me of where I went, where I was, where I've come from. And also just kind of, it's a little fun thing to do on set. And, you know, I got a, I got a dope stylist, Milton Latrell out of Chicago with uh, Shop Agriculture. He styles me. I, I, I can't take credit for my looks. Mm -hmm. I say, here's my size. He gives me the, he gives me the, the wardrobe and all that. And he, he decks me out. This guy, he has a passion for fashion. Like I have a passion for film and that's yeah. why I work so well. So that's I where might, it comes from. I might need that contact. Cause I got, oh, a, got a couple custom suits, but I know I need to, uh, oh, need to get up on that. He's the best. This dude is amazing. Yeah. That's what's up. Um, so I, I, I will ask this question. Um, and, I, and I'll preface even before you reply that it is in no way uh, an indictment on your other work, but like what's been your favorite show or scene to direct? Uh, the opening sequence of episode eight, season three of Snowfall. That's probably been, because we were using motion control. It, it you know, it, it was taking a lot of, a lot of time, but I knew it was gonna be dope, but you know, when you're shooting it, you may have an idea. We had been working on this idea. Me and my DP, Tommy Maddox, we had been working on this idea. I was like, yo, I got an idea to do the sequence. And it just, it grew to this motion control thing. And so Tommy, my AD, you know, Dennis, we were all in on this, but it was taking a little time. And the producer was like, yo, this is taking way too long, six eighths of a page. And I'm like, maybe I'll let me start modifying it. And my DP was like, man, don't you change a fucking thing. This shit is dope. You start modifying it, it's gonna ruin the whole thing. And I'm like, all right, let's just live in it then. He, he was 100% right, 100% right. And that sequence is one of my proudest moments in terms of storytelling because it condenses a, a woman's addiction into like a minute and a half, minute and 45 seconds to show. And, and, and not, it's not just her smoking, but you see her wardrobe change, her face changes, her, uh, her bedroom changes until she starts hocking stuff. So we just tell this story so cinematically in that time. And I'm like, and that, that, I hold that with me because sometimes, once again, it goes back to when you're doing something that scares you, don't let the fear disrupt you. Just push through that joint, you know what I'm saying? So I, I always give praise to uh, my DP, Tommy Maddox, for, for, for reminding me of that. He said, man, this shit is dope. Don't change a fucking thing, because if you change it, it's gonna ruin the whole thing. Just You, gotta, you just gotta live in it. And right. we lived in it. So I, I hold that dearly, man. And, and nowadays, like I said, when I'm doing the show, I'm like, okay, I'm about to do something we've never done before. I go back to that. 
Right. I go back to that 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 day we shot that. Did you get any uh, like you know direct shout outs from anybody from the show in relationship to what y'all did? Wait, I'm not sure I follow you. you like, did you? did the showrunner hit you up? Like, yo, that was that was the that was. Oh yeah, oh man, dude, it 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 became it it just set off that episode. Yeah, I got a lot of shout outs from you know the showrunner, the network. You know what I'm saying? Because because it I, I was asked back to do the last two episodes of this season. So my first one comes on this Wednesday, and the next one comes on next Wednesday. So I did episodes nine and ten this year. So uh, so yeah, it it. it that risk paid off, man. As, as, and that's usually how it goes, man. You roll a you roll calculated dice, the payoff can be, you know, can be rewarding. I love that. Yeah, man. I I, I feel you, man. I did a similar thing on an episode of, of Grays, and I was like, Yeah, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it. And then <laughs> when they ran the promo for for the episode, it's the shot. It's and the I shot. was like, okay, yeah. I was right. But yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta fight through the like. Cause, Cause our whole currency is is day making. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we make days. And and even if you know that you'll catch up on the back end, because you can simplify later scenes, sometimes you feel like, well, they don't know that. Yeah. And they don't feel that. And yeah. do I want is it you're like weighing all this bullshit. So yeah. it's great that y'all had that collaborative. Yeah. Um, no, I was dope. But to answer your question even further, more so than the actual showrunner and the network, other shows that I've been eyeing, it mm. became a calling card. Dope. They're like, oh, you know, and, and it's allowed me to get access into shows I may not have gotten access to without that type of, you know, episode under my belt. Can you name those shows? Just curious. I would rather not because one, I'm, I'm one I haven't done yet. One I've done that's going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So I'd, I'd rather just hold tight. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Um, okay, and then the last question here in this lightning round, brother, is if you could tell yourself, your younger self, um, you know, a couple uh, words of advice back in, you know, 1998, 1999, what would you say? Do not be afraid to fail, mm-hmm. but make sure you learn the lesson from the fail. Embrace your failures and the lessons from those failures. Because back in the day, I was like, I don't ever want to fail. I don't ever, I had a fear of failing mm. until I failed. <laughs> I said, okay, that's what I this is a fail, right? This is an unequivocal fail. I'm sitting here. And so yeah, I would just say if you fail, learn the lesson. And then it's not it's not even necessarily a fail anymore. It's just a lesson. It costs you a little bit. So I would I would tell my young self, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. Just learn from it so that you never make that mistake again. Awesome, man. Well, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. This is episode 26, I think this is going to be. Uh, oh, wow. So we'll drop right. this on the uh, premiere of your second episode of Snowfall. So oh, word. Okay. That That's what's minute. up. Yeah. Um, it's always a pleasure rapping with other directors. I got some inspiration here. I got some tools that I can add to my toolkit, man. And I'm sure the listeners did as well. Hey, brother, before you cut off, man, I got I to gotta say this to you, man. I can't let us get off without telling you, man, how valuable what you're doing is to not just myself and our peers, but so many young filmmakers need to see and hear people like you talking about the craft in this way, man. This is, this is a, a level of currency that you just can't get anywhere, man. So I, pro- I applaud you for this, man. Like I told you before, I've been a fan from day one. So this is awesome, man. I look forward to every episode because I definitely take nuggets from each one. You know, I got my little notebook where I'm like, oh, that's a gym, that's a bar. That's a bar right there. So, you know, it's, 
kudos to you, brother, man. So what, you, what you're doing is on the right side of things, man. So much love to you on that. Man, much love, man. Appreciate it. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right. So thank you for listening to episode 26 with Carl Seaton. Join us for Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, episode 27 next week. Uh, guest undetermined, TBD, TBA. Uh, subject matter, I don't know yet because I'm shooting. But what I will do is uh, try and record this thing uh, the weekend before Wednesday, right after I wrap or at some other point. So um, we appreciate y'all. Any questions, hop to that mailbag, hit us up on social media. And as always, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating.